This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Sabine Anyabwile. And I'm Ben Brophy. Ben, he, well, we could say he's a new addition to our podcast, but actually he's not. Ben's been with us from the beginning. He's our producer. But a, a funny thing happened as we were recording this podcast. Every time we'd have a conversation, we'd turn off the recording, and then Ben would say something, and we'd get into this whole discussion, and we thought, oh, we should have recorded that. And so we are trying to end that phenomenon by having Ben uh, comment uh, and just contribute to our discussion. Let, let's be clear. We'd finish our little talk, and then Ben would blow it up that's into right. 100 that's pieces. Right. Like, that's oh, right. that was a really good argument, mm-hmm. dude. So, and we need to talk about right. it. That's right. So we finally fired him from his silence <laughs> and uh, required him to join the show, man. We're glad to have you on. Couldn't be more thrilled to be here. <laughs> ben is somewhat been, somewhat here under duress, but either way, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna run with it. Hey, Amen. All right, so today we're gonna talk about another sort of loaded term, um, so-called political correctness. Um, it's a term that first rose to prominence, um, I think, in universities in the 1980s and the 1990s. We are gonna come back to that, um, and it's sort of making a comeback today. Both kind of, I think, supporters and detractors, actually. Um, so yeah, so that's mm-hmm. what we're gonna talk about. So you're talking about um, making its heyday in the '80s and '90s on university campuses. That's, I was, I was, I was, I was thinking about you. Yeah, that's I was, my I was, era. I was thinking about you too. Amen. So you were right there in the middle of it, right? So tell us what it is, man. Well, maybe you should tell us. No, what it is. Okay, no, no, no. I, I want you to tell us how you experienced no, I, it. I love it when the babies tell us oh, about our generation. Yeah. So tell, <laughs> tell oh, us goodness. about political correctness. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <laughs> all I have to offer, all I have to offer, is a humble Wikipedia definition. <laughs> that's good. Because I'm starting right there. Okay, the term political correctness it says is used to describe language policies or measures that are intended to avoid offense or disadvantage to members of particular groups in society so again i want to uh, emphasize language policies or measures that are intended to avoid offense or disadvantage to members of particular groups in society uh, to put it more a little bit more bluntly it involves me watching what i say or do uh, for fear that it might offend someone around me, basically. Okay, so work that out. Give us a couple of examples. All right, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give us some sort of simple ones. Here's one. So uh, the N word. So if I, as a person who isn't black, if I use that word, I would get in a lot of trouble. Um, rightly so. I wouldn't be put in jail, but a lot of people would be upset with me, including my family. Um, and that's actually the nub of the debate. Should they be upset? I know that sound that sounds a little okay. So Ben's like, well, of it? course, yeah. So, well, okay, no, but 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 at its ex- sort of so I'll, okay. I'm going to tell this story now because I think it's 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 important. So we're gonna we're gonna link to this very old grainy 1980s 90s YouTube clip um, in the show notes. Um, but so for me, political correctness is encapsulated by something that kind of happened uh, sort of as I'm growing up, right. Um, I'm sort of enamored of this idea of like free speech, right? I'm enamored that like I can say whatever I want and so on and so forth. And so one comedian who talked a lot about that in those days was a guy named George Carlin, uh, since passed away, kind of a famous comedian. Um, And um, he did this one provocative bit in one of his routines in which he talked about the N-word. And he said, I won't get the quote right exactly, you can watch the video, but he said, there's nothing technically wrong with the N-word. And he said it out loud. Um, it's the racist who's using it you got to be worried about. It's context and intent that matters. Um, and I just, I felt so liberated. And, yeah. I wish I, the people could see your Carlin. It's a pretty good Carlin. Oh, yeah, my Carlin, yeah. My, so so I, I felt, so as a young person, sort of enamored of free speech, I, I sort of felt, oh, liberated and empowered. Of course, 
I'm enlightened. It goes, it's so far beyond kind of these words and what they might mean to people. And I remember playing that clip for like my best friend in college who is African-American. Um, and she was very, in retrospect, she was extraordinarily polite <laughs> um, because she sort of told me why she objected. Um, but I think what I didn't understand at the time was sort of what was the sort of impact that that's going to have on the, on the ears of a different listener, a listener who is black right versus a listener who isn't um and does context matter so ben when i say should someone be upset when i use the word it's with george carlin in the back of my mind who might say well not if you didn't mean it a certain way you shouldn't be upset nick didn't mean it that way so why why should you be upset at him for using that word at at the extreme the the i won't say extreme but the kind of total argument against political correctness would say Measure Nick by his intent, not by the word he used, essentially. So so that's, I think, the nub of the issue. Yeah. yeah. Other examples? So uh, uh, sort of something from my day-to-day work. I often describe, I have to describe in the third person leaders in government, right? Mayors or governors or prime ministers. If I'm doing that in the abstract, I'll be careful to say something like the mayor of a city, whoever he or she is. I'll go out of my way to do that. I'll go out of my way to say... It would be easier to say he, a bit more convenient, a little less effort, two fewer syllables. Um, but I make the effort to do both. In fact, this will I'm sure this will be provocative to some listeners. Uh, I make the extra effort to alternate so that I might say she or he, and then sometimes and other times he or she, right? And the, the basic intent of all this is to give credence to the idea that a leader like that can be of either gender and to not assume that they're from one gender or the other. And hopefully, my, my hope is... To the ears of a woman in particular, my words send a signal that I don't make that assumption, right? That I don't assume that. Um, And by the way, it applies to kind of any type of group. So I'll give you one more example. Um, J.D. Vance wrote that famous book at this point, Hillbilly Elegy. And I was reflecting on, I thought, as a person of color from the sort of coastal elite part of America, I'm not sure it would ever be helpful for me to use that word to describe another person or group of people right? I'm pretty sure it would almost always come off as the coastal elite trying to demean people from rural Appalachian backgrounds. So, I'm, I mean, I know this. I've policed myself in the past. I'm pretty careful never to use that word either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are sort of examples of political correctness at work in language, at least. There are other sort of places where it might come up. Yeah. yeah. So, so back in the Old, old days. Yeah, tell us how it really was. <laughs> tell, how, tell us how Some it really was. Some of us were on campuses yeah. in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. and being introduced to this. No, I, I remember you asked, you asked me what my experience of it was. Uh, I think, for me, it was the first time that I had been sort of intentionally taught the difference between intent and impact, mm. right? So that what was happening in the classroom for me was people were helping me with my language uh, and understanding that uh, I can't just retreat to my intent, yep. right, as justification for something that's impacting people, uh, sometimes quite quite harmfully, yep. um, sometimes kind of um, not as harmful, but but also important. So your example about uh, gender inclusive language, you know, about mm-hmm. him or her as mayor or she as mayor. Uh, the ways in which that language is representative of including uh, mm-hmm. women in your thinking and, and not unintentionally even um, mm-hmm. sort of closing off an idea or a realm of experience to women. 
that was the kind of thing I was being made aware of uh, in the 80s and 90s and, and being helped with uh, language-wise. Um, and so I, I experienced it largely as positive and also experienced it as, as a recipient, right? Mm. So your first example around N-word and, and things that are racially sensitive or insensitive, with a lot of that sensitivity training um, mm. that was being done around the, in the 80s or so um, was being done in, with the aim of making universities and other places um, more positively aware hmm. of, of how different people were experiencing yep. the classroom or the campus environment and so on, um, and, and trying to encourage things that would actually make those environments more welcoming uh, hmm. and more affirming and uh, less prejudicial and less off-putting in, in what folks hoped was to be an appropriate way. Now, a lot of that gets hijacked and gets spent, gets spun out in very various directions that maybe none of us would agree with. Mm-hmm. But that's what I was experiencing in the eighties uh, and nineties during my undergraduate days. Yep, yep. No, I, so you've crystallized it there, Thabiti. Kind of the difference between intent and impact, mm. and the person who favor who thinks political correctness has a place in our in our sort of world would say exactly that. Right? It doesn't matter what Nick intended. Nick needs to think about the impact of his words. And oh, by the way, depending on the listener, the impact will be different. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Nick needs to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's important. Ben, what are some of the kind of arguments against political correctness? Or actually, just to the B's point, where can it go awry? So I think as we've talked here, we've talked about self-policing, right? So Nick is trying to serve Mm -hmm. the folks around him. Um, by using speech that would be unoffensive. Uh, I think there's something very Christian about that in in terms of being all things to all people uh, in order that we might hopefully be able to share Christ with those people. Um, There's a good book, which I'd commend, called Conscience. um, that talks about a lot of this stuff. It's really worth reading. It's Mm -hmm. short. Uh, So in that sense... I, I think it's it's wonderful. It's a good way to love and serve people around you within certain limits. Where it can where I feel, and given my conservative libertarian leanings, I get nervous. Outed for the first time, right here, <laughs> right outed, now. Outed for the first time. Um, where I get nervous is when we start to think about policing speech via policy that the government could pass, policy by the social media mob. Um, which is cultural consequences or policy within your workplace. Um, yep. Now, we don't have, a, you know, if, if somebody is out-and-out racist, there's no guarantee that there won't be blowback for them, and, and perhaps rightly. However, there are plenty of values that we can all think of that we as Christians hold that are increasingly unpopular. And mm. as a citizen of the United States, I would make an argument that I would like to keep those, um, keep those freedoms. Um, so th- that's where I start to get nervous is when it becomes not self-policing, but policing by an outside agency. I think you start to infringe on people's freedom of conscience, which which would be an issue, I think, for all of us, but particularly from my particular political milieu. Yep. If, if I could add one thing to that, uh, I think the other place where I would get concerned is its tendency to uh, an overly therapeutic, uh, overly emotional um, bent in some folks. Um, so that the language of, and this gets a little tricky, 
but the language, for example, of something, a comment being triggering, right? Yep. You, you hear that a lot. Yep. And, and there are cases where I want to go, yeah, that's right. And, you know, situations where the N-word go, is triggering. That's right. For example. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there are other places where I go, uh, and this is the pushback from some people. I think I, that person needs to toughen up a little bit. Right. You know, I'm, I'm not sure anybody should be prevented from saying that. Or even if I think it's wrong, I'm not sure you should walk away thinking uh, a great injury has been done to you to the extent that now societally we should clamp down on that particular speech and so on. And so some of it's a little bit like beauty, right? Some of it's a little bit like it's in the eye of the beholder as to what's politically correct or incorrect. So there too, we're not, we don't really have objective standards for it. Uh, and that's something that I think could go you know, yeah. sideways in, in the application. And that argument of you need to toughen up a little bit was made by no uh, lesser raving leftist than Barack Obama <laughs> a few years ago, talking about sort of the environment on campuses that's today. Right. That's right. right? So yeah. this idea of um, I need, you know, the campus needs to be a safe space. I need to be safe from certain types of language that are offensive to me. Again, there are probably categories of that that are real. And I think the question is where you draw the line. Yeah. And, I, and I'd love for you to talk more about this too. I mean, the other thing is, mm. Which words and phrases, which speech is sort of included as politically correct or incorrect is evolving, it's changing. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think that's that's a really, really important point. And one objection, too, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of. Sort of an objection. Um, basically, this idea of it's hard to keep up, right? Like, how am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to say, mm -hmm. right? Um, to take an example from, like, you know, I... Uh, to take an example from uh, sort of the uh, LGBT community, when I was in college, it was the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. Now, depending on who you ask, it's at the very least LGBTQIA. There are actually longer acronyms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so how do I keep up with that, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of one thing. And, 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 and an exasperated person might throw up their hands and go, oh, the heck with it. It's just, it's all just stuff you're making up, right? And um, you know, to be on another episode, you've talked with us about um, even kind of African Americans claiming an identity. Mm -hmm. In the civil rights era, it was black with a capital B, mm -hmm. right? I think Negro with a capital N was in fashion mm -hmm. for a time. At some point, it became African. It could become something else in the future. Mm -hmm. And are we okay with? Yeah. Well, it's going to become Wakandan. There we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it. You heard it here first. Um, but but just even to think that like is that okay? Why do? In other words. Why do the people from these groups, right, get to sort of set the rules and keep changing them, and I just have to keep up? That's one objection to political correctness, basically, um, that I think is worth us grappling with a little bit. Yeah, I think that's good. I, you mentioned the George Carlin bit on the mm -hmm. N-word. If you keep listening to that, that, that same show, mm -hmm. he moves right into uh, his bit on euphemisms. Yes. And does about 10 minutes on euphemisms, you know, talking about how we go from shell shocked all the way up to post traumatic stress disorder. That's right. Uh, and it's just, it's just it's a, a whole bit, litany. Actually. It's a great bit. Uh, now, we, if you are of sensitive conscience, <laughs> and, uh, you know. This is your trigger warning. This is, this is your, trigger, this is your trigger warning. Don't go listen to Carlin uh, if, you, if you don't want to hear some F bombs and things. And so we're not commending that. Uh, but it is a great, it is a great sort of excursus on. Euphemism. Are we making Christian podcast history by <laughs> recommending George Carlin? <laughs> George Carlin? Oh my gosh. We could be. We, we could might be. be. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, well, so, um, 
So, so, so let me let me kind of bring it back around to this because then I want to go back to Thabiti and kind of scripture uh, behind this. Um, if I think about the debate over political correctness, it's really about pitting two good things against each other. Hmm. On the one hand, the need for us to be decent and compassionate with our neighbors, and therefore to try to think about the impact our words or our actions will have on them. Um, on the other hand, the need, um, or at least the value rooted in sort of an enlightenment tradition that is kind of very, very much baked into the fabric of our country, constitution, law, etc., um, to protect a right to free speech, right? Even when that speech is offensive. So there's an apocryphal quote attributed to Voltaire, right? That says, I disagree with what you say, uh, but I will defend to, your, to the death your right to say it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a, a lot of us, I know myself included, were kind of raised on this idea of, yeah, that's what free speech means. And that is also kind of an ideal and important part of our story. Um, so we're talking about where we land on that. Before we do that, Thabiti, what does the Bible have to say about this question of compassion, uh, this question of how our speech interacts with this question of compassion, but also the usefulness of a principle of freedom of speech? Well, that, that's a big question, brother. The Bible yeah. has a lot to say about speech, mm -hmm. right? And right. To, to condense it in just a couple minutes is, is a, it's an arduous task, but... Um, let's go back to let's go back to the beginning, and let's go back to the fact that we're made in the image of God. And interestingly, that that very notion, that very mm -hmm. truth, is foundational both to human government mm -hmm. and to something like speech. Yep. So in Genesis nine, right where the state is first seen as having the sword, yep. um, its capital punishment is rooted in the fact that we're made in God's image. Mm -hmm. But then you come all the way down to James three. And James is talking about problems with the tongue. Yep. And he talks about it, are there things that we should not say to others for that same reason, that they are made in the image of God, right? So our kind of theology of, of what it means to be made in the image of God and how that, um, how that informs how we treat others mm -hmm. uh, is, is really quite important to this question of, of speech, right? right? So our speech is bounded by mm -hmm. the fact that the neighbor the other is made in the image and likeness of God. So we, in some sense, should be thinking about that fact, that the person I'm talking to bears God's imprimatur, right? That ought to be shaping how I speak to them, you know, mm -hmm. as if I'm speaking to God, right? And that, that's, that's explicit in James 3. Well, um, there's also goals to our communication then. Mm -hmm. So you come to a place like Ephesians 4.29, right? Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, only what is edifying, what builds the other person up according to their need and, and ministers grace to the hearer, right? And, and so what we're learning as Christians from the Bible is we do not have uh, a, a conception of free speech that ever allows us to say anything to anybody that we mm -hmm. wish to, uh, but actually directs our speech in, in, in particular ways, in ways that acknowledge the image of God in the other and in ways that build up the other and so on. Even where Paul could say in Titus, for example, that Titus should rebuke the Cretans sharply, mm. it's so that they may be sound in the faith. Yep. The rebuke itself is not an end. It is meant to serve a purpose. There, there's soundness in the faith. Uh, and so our speaking is is conscripted in those ways. Our, our speaking is, is circumscribed uh, yeah. in those ways. And so when we come to then thinking about free speech from a Christian perspective, we do want to enable, right, um, 
individuals to live and speak without the coercion of the state, the undue coercion of the state. Back to yeah. Ben's point yeah. about wariness, about censorship. Mm-hmm. This is why we, we, I think, in God's providence, we have laws that protect citizens against censorship. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we do want to sort of advocate and fight for that freedom because it's in keeping with what Ben was talking about in terms of the conscience. Mm-hmm. Then at the same time, as a neighbor, we want to sort of admonish people not to use that freedom in a way that impairs um, the the sort of uh, image of God in others or in a way that tears down rather than edifies. We want to encourage people to use that right. speech in a way that's appropriate given uh, that we're people made in the image and likeness of God. So yep. in broad strokes, that's how I might summarize that. Mm. So there is kind of a biblical root for both of these sort of good things. I think so, Yeah. right? So, so political correctness in its best sense Mm. It's just a, a form of love your neighbor, mm. right? It's just it's just love your neighbor meets your tongue, yeah. right? So there are things you just would not say if you're going to be considerate mm. of the impact of your words, right? It's yeah. a golden rule, yeah. right? Um, and, and yet the Bible also, I think, mm. teaches us something about the freedoms that, that human beings should have by virtue of the fact that they're made in the image of God. And mm-hmm. so there are things that should not be coerced uh, either by society or by government. Yep. Uh, and so we kind of back our way into, uh, not necessarily using enlightenment principles, mm-hmm. but just biblical theology, we back our way into right. wanting to argue for government protecting that freedom uh, and respecting conscience uh, in that way. Yep, yep. I, I do think there's an interesting observation there. It's sort of to what end do we value freedom of speech, mm-hmm. right? We value it um, for the reason of kind of protection of people. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting is that for a certain subset of sort of free speech absolutists, what you're going to find is people sort of going out of their way to be offensive, almost as if to prove the point. (laughs) Um, And maybe, maybe, I mean, literally in a handful of cases, that's necessary for symbolic value, I guess, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But actually, I mean, so the the case that comes to mind is the... um, the contest of that European newspaper to depict the Prophet Muhammad, mm. right? Mm. So if you remember that, that was yeah. that was sort of a finger in the eye style of free speech absolutism, yeah. right? It was like, let me do this because I can, mm-hmm. effectively, and to t- sort of test the boundaries. But if you're a Christian, odds are you're going to say, I, I might want to advocate for free speech, but that's probably not a loving way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I do think that if we're going to stand up for free speech, we've got to be careful not to sort of fall into that category. So the other thing about sort of free speech, and I realize this is a kind of consequentialist argument, but the other thing about free speech is, uh, and speech in general, is we actually want to practice the kind of speech that engenders civility, Yeah. right? Um, and and we're just in an era right now where that civility is in low supply. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I want to argue for the judicious use of speech even a judicious use of sort of provocative speech from time to time in service to a kind of civility, in service to an awakening us to the inhumanity of a lot of our speech. Um, And and want to encourage a kind of, I don't think we need the encouragement of of free speech these days as much as we need maybe an encouragement to free listening. And, and (laughs) and And that is to say, choose wisely who you listen to. Right. Right. Not everybody with a microphone, uh, should be given an ear. Um, and so maybe we need more discernment on the, on the receiving end um, as much as the, the, the speaking end. So two points on that, one of which is, I hope, shorter. Ben, to go back to the point you made about concerns or qualms, 
I don't have a good answer, right, for the social media mob descending on the person who said something they didn't like, right? Uh, unless one of the, some of those mobs commit crimes of some kind, which you can prosecute, but harassment is actually, well, sometimes you can prosecute that too, but sometimes that's difficult to sort of police, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a good answer for sort of, other than to say that if I'm the one making the speech, I've got to be ready to accept the consequences of making the speech. I don't know. You, 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 yeah. Tell me what you think, Ben. I, I think that's difficult because the the speech that is being mobbed is oftentimes decently thought out uh, and eh. getting attacked. I mean, there's a there's a writer for National Review named David French who who told he's a yeah. he's a never Trumper, um, and he wrote about it and he wrote about the consequences of having that position to the point where there's death threats to his family yep. to his adopted daughter who is yep. uh, I believe African American, um, mm -hmm. and, and that to me he he's making a reasonable argument one way and, and to yeah. me it's like i don't know how to change this mob mentality justice mm -hmm. but it's not as if he's saying something outlandish and getting an appropriate totally you're right about that right but well, i guess what i'd say there it's sort of like how i mean this is this is perhaps stretching the analogy too far but in the days of into the days of civil rights right civil disobedience came with an understanding that you accepted the consequences of it too right even though you were fighting for you were fighting for something that was right and there's a there's a courage that it takes to do that. And I think for someone like David French, it actually takes courage to sort of write about being a never Trumper, right? Sure. And there's there's examples on the left, right, and everywhere mm -hmm. in between of people getting mobbed. I, I think as Christians, we should say it ought not be so. Of course. Absolutely. Um, and that that's my No, you're you're totally right. Yeah. So so the core what I was gonna say is I don't have a good answer for the social media mob. I do have a good an a better answer <laughs> for the idea of in the case of the, say the social media, say the, what about the sort of mob on campus and whether university policy sort of sides with the mob, which in some cases it can be construed to do. The, the, the detractors of, uh, of political correctness are eager to point, or will be eager to point that out. Mm. You say, well, gosh, the policy certainly shouldn't, should protect the person who has said something provocative, um, whether it's well thought out or maybe less well thought out, mm. right? If, if, if To the extent possible. I, I think all I'm saying with the social media mob is I literally, I, I don't think we have, we have not yet figured out the technology to protect a person from a social media mob. Does that, if that makes sense, right? I think it makes perfect sense. And I, and I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, which again is going to require, I mean, the, the, the only inoculation we have against that is how we actually then use social media yeah. and, and what we subject ourselves to yeah. and what we endorse, um, you know, in that medium. Can we talk about that for a second? Can we talk about social media and being a Christian? Yeah. Can, can I make one comment before we oh, do that? Oh, yeah, though? yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it, it strikes me that uh, in the evolution of political correctness, I, I think you get the marriage of some bad forms of things we've talked about before on the show. So you get the you get the marriage of a bad form of political correctness, which is a kind of censorship, I think, with uh, perhaps some bad forms of identity politics, mm. right? Uh, and then you get sort of a coercive element to it, yeah. right? So if I can't say what I want to say for fear of um, injuring, you know, or at least offending, mm. uh, making unhappy a a particular group. Uh, okay. And they have whether it's social media coercion or or mm. campus protests or whatever they have sort of a coercive ability yep. uh, to right. to shut down the discussion or to even injure me. 
Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a bad cocktail. That yeah. that's a that's a that's a, a powerful mixture of um, elements that I think we want to be very careful yeah. about uh, and not shake and stir. So the so to bring that out into the current fight. So Ben, tell me if I've got this right. This is sort of what conservatives mean when they talk about the deplatforming. I think that's the word they use, right? Mm. Of no, of of kind yeah. of a speaker who comes to campus, right? And protest that makes that spe- either causes the speaker not to come or causes them to fear for their life when they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the type of thing where we should say, in civil discourse, we don't allow such things to happen, I think. Mm-hmm. Let me push that point one one step further, though, right? So one of these people, right, was Charles Murray, mm-hmm. who... I was just thinking about oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the kind of argument for, quote-unquote, deplatforming is the view is so abhorrent, right? that it should be outside the mainstream of discussion. I think that I think I'm characterizing what some would say, right? Like there are some things that we shouldn't sort of what do we think? What do we think of a situation like that? So and 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 I'm sorry, background I guess for listeners, right? Like so Charles Murray um written many books, one of his most famous early ones called The Bell Curve, I think um interpreted by some I think many uh in the sort of progressive camp as sort of being a a basis for uh, kind of scientific racism, I guess would be the best way to put it. Some would call it pseudoscience. And then there are others who say, no, 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 that's not what it is. And I think that's that's the nub of the issue. It's quite sensitive. So yeah, I, I wonder what you guys think. Um, so yeah, so Charles Murray, I remember that story and it, it, the campus reaction to him coming and speaking was actually incredibly violent. There was a, another professor whose hair right. was pulled and that's terrifying as a guy who likes the marketplace of ideas what i'd like to see is somebody rebut what he's put out in the bell curve which many have sure um and have the argument in the public square you know charles murray as far as i am aware when he's in public debate isn't using incendiary language some of his conclusions Mm -hmm. may be incendiary um so what i what i prefer is invite him to all of the campuses and just invite somebody who's well versed in the ideas and can present the other side and kind of rebut where he's missing things or you know where where he's off so that that's where as a citizen that's what i would ideally like to see see this is interesting because this takes me back to 1980s on a college campus. It's all been done when, before. When the bell curve comes out. The going to school us. No, oh, shoot. No, no, yeah, no. when the bell curve when comes bell out. Curve that's comes right. Out. I'm yes. not going to school you. I'm just yeah. saying it's taking me right back to mm-hmm. where we started in this show. Yeah. And I remember learning of the bell curve from one of my mentors in college, Dr. Rupert Barnes-Nicoss. He was actually, uh, he's a social psychologist by training. He's actually an expert in affirmative action, going back again to one of the mm. earlier conversations we've had on this podcast. Um, I saw the book laying on his desk. I walked in and said, hey, what's that? And he kind of, and he told me what the premise of the book was. And uh, and right there on the spot in his office, he goes into this 15-minute critique of, of the yeah. really faulty research, right? Uh, so the bell curve made its way around. And in that day of political correctness, uh, mm. it was debated in much the way that, that my uh. brother's talking about here. So when I fast forward now 30 years, and I hear of what breaks out with Murray right. uh, just a year or so ago, I was surprised that anybody was still listening to Murray. 
right? <laughs> so, <laughs> ironically, this whole thing has given him more attention than he's seen in years, which that's an interesting, unexpected result of de-platforming him as you've actually given him a much larger platform. Right. That's right. So, so where I, my reaction to that would have been, uh, rather than have him on every college campus, um, you know, I'm sure he's going to make it on some campuses, but I, he just wouldn't have gotten an invitation from me if I was the chair of some student union making these kind of decisions about programming on a campus or a chair of a department making about these uh, sort of programs on the campus. And even if I did extend that invitation, right, because I, I thought, okay, maybe this is something worth talking about, his work on marriage recently and so on, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, I, I, the, the world I would long for is the world where, where he's invited to campus and people aren't interested. They don't come. <laughs> you know, they right. just simply right. you know, choose to listen or not listen, but they, they don't come. Um, and and they, don't, they don't give more notoriety to the speaker with ill-informed protests and certainly sinful mm-hmm. protests attacking professors and hurt, harming people physically. Um, rather, it's the kind of intellectual rebuttal mm. right, that, that may be required for that as opposed to um, the kind of taking up of arms, basically, in that way. So I, I would want a world where if a Murray does speak, people either don't come or people who are on the other side of the issue actually effectively rebut. Yeah. And so um, stretch the analogy slightly farther, right? If it were Richard Spencer, sort of a sort of famous white nationalist, well, I don't yeah. know how famous, but white nationalist leader <laughs> Richard Spencer. Yeah, yeah. I, the same thing. Yep. Right. Yep. So, so if we are committed to the ideals of free speech, then then our policy has to protect a Richard Spencer. Yeah. And a Charles Murray, and and has to protect whoever else we think is representative of the mainstream and and should be listened to. Right. Right. Um. So that so that the role of government isn't to censor ideas, mm. except where it, it can be shown that folks are are actually rallying with those ideas toward the harm of others, toward the infringement of other laws, right? Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, you know, if we liken Spencer to Hitler, mm-hmm. right, and Hitler's gassing up the ovens, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't understand us to, that the Bible requires us to be promoting that kind of thinking that leads to a holocaust or leads to murder or some other such thing, right? That's criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, there is such a thing as criminal speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we need those kinds of categories, right? But, but assuming we're not talking about the criminal, Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we are meant to be sort of yeah. policing uh, speech in such a way that we're shutting down that basic freedom. Yeah. Okay, good. So I think we've we've talked a little bit now about kind of the limits of political correctness and how that actually should be tempered by an ethic of free speech. And I'll only add one thing to that, which is that if you are going to protest, the Christian ethic of protest is nonviolent, mm-hmm. and it is it is gracious and it is pleading. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, would be the only thing I'd say there, right? And so it should be, uh, yeah. Anyway, just something that I add. There's, there's a you can do it if you want, I guess, right? Yeah. Like that's a category. I'd, I'd only add one category to that, and that's civil disobedience. Yeah, that's right. right. So whether yeah. it's the midwives in Egypt refusing Pharaoh's edict, mm-hmm. or whether it's Daniel and the boys refusing mm-hmm. to worship, so there's a civil disobedience bit there yeah. that's disruptive of civil society. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean the basic posture you yeah. described, I think, is right. And someone like a Charles Murray would never walk away from it saying, "My gosh, I felt 
I feared for my life, right? Or I feared for the lives of those around us. No, they wouldn't. They walk away from it. Some people would walk away from it talking about the way they talk about football players kneeling the anthem. It's sure. Like it's the worst thing to yeah, ever yeah, have yeah. happened. And but they what, would be wrong. scum. <laughs> that's yeah. right. And, yeah. uh, and that's so right. on. Yeah. Exactly right. All right. So actually, that's a good, that's a good segue because right. we've established the limits of political correctness. I want to talk about the other side of the issue now, which is to say, how does the right talk about political correctness? Um, so... The right, in particular the man in the Oval Office, they like to denounce political correctness. It's a it's a favorite punching bag. In fact, so much so that when I did my research on this, political correctness often was shown up, it, w- it was literally in the dictionary defined as a pejorative, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, that's political correctness. Mm-hmm. Um, so a quote from the man who is now president uh, during the presidential campaign, and it's sort of representative. Right? If you look through the archive of whenever he's talked about this, he says, I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I've been challenged by so many people, and I don't frankly have time for total political correctness. And to be honest with you, this country doesn't have time either. Um, so what's going on here with sort of the right and being against, saying there's too much political correctness? Well, I, I think it's probably an example of what I was saying before, of, mm-hmm. of um, runaway applications of political correctness married to a tribalism mm. right and identity politics here so he's appealing in a quote like that mm-hmm. to his base which is uh, often been characterized as, as sort of a disaffected mm-hmm. uh, largely white part of the country uh, and and largely working class to lower working class you know part of the country um who, who maybe longed for the days when political correctness did, hadn't ruined the country, right? Uh, and so in the highest office of the land, and that's, and that's powerful, mm-hmm. uh, I think you're getting the marriage of these kinds of things in ways that stoke um, mistrust and division and mm-hmm. animus in the public square. Um, it's a powerful thing to appeal to. You know, mm-hmm. you could do it on the left or the right. You can do it in the middle. I mean, it's, uh, this kind of cocktail can be drank by anybody of any political persuasion. Mm. So it's not unique to President Trump. Um, but again, it, it's, it's, not, it's not actually furthering free speech. Mm-hmm. It is in its worst forms actually hurting free mm-hmm. speech uh, in, the, in the opposite direction. It, it may feel justified because it's pushing back against what it feels is an overreach already in the yeah. name of political correctness. And now it's pushing back with such force uh, as to sort of overcorrect in the opposite direction. Yep. Ben? Yeah, I think the one thing about that quote that I think the reason it appealed to to so many people, I think, is there are there is quite a few people who are probably not so worried about intellectual carefulness. Mm-hmm. Um, they're worried about I my husband just lost his job. He's 45 without a college degree. What do I do now? And and to them, the idea that I also need to care about X, Y, and Z offensive language is just so far removed from the kitchen table discussion of how mm-hmm. we're going to pay our bills mm-hmm. that it, it, it's alienating, frustrating, and, and frankly, I'm not going to say offensive, but they can't understand it. They can't understand how somebody could be worried about words when they're worried about food on the table. Mm-hmm. So, so that that's my sympathy for the person who no, hears that. That's and a very helpful way to put it. Good. A really helpful way to put it. So, so it's interesting. I asked, um, I asked that question expecting a different answer from you, Thabiti. You, you, well, you both gave sort of 
what's the sort of good faith version of that argument? And, and I guess my argument would be when it's the problem with the use of the word political correctness in quotes like these is that it's often a bad faith use of the mm-hmm. word, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it takes some of those extreme cases that we just described, right? The deplatforming, the violence, the mob, the whatever, and applies them to much more sort of rudimentary asks that we make in political correctness. Please don't use the N-word. Yeah. I mean, just to go back to my, you know, mm-hmm. my perennial example, right? Mm-hmm. Please, you know, be inclusive in your language, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Which is far less extreme. And then you say, you know what, guys? It's all a problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is just too much political correctness. I don't have time for it. That's a very, very important mm-hmm. framing of it. I don't have time for it. The country doesn't have time for it. Mm-hmm. Um, ben, I think I'm, I understand where you're coming from in terms of there are, you know, pocketbook, kitchen table issues um, for people. How should I worry about this? And yet, those very same people, right, um, would be quite offended, right, at the idea of being sort of dismissed as kind of rubes or kind of backwater people or any number of other slurs um, that the coastal elite would use about them. And in fact, much of this president's victory was fueled by grievance about that. Right. Like without even getting into the racial element of it. Right. I would I would argue that there is a there's a certain extent to which all of us have the capacity to be offended by the impact of another person's words based on an appeal to our group identity. Right. Um, And I think and and I think for that reason, uh, you know, there there's um, I think it's it's sometimes too convenient to, to dismiss another person's argument as being an appeal to political correctness. It is a favorite tool of people on the right, though, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, at its worst, what it's essentially is doing is saying, we don't need to be decent anymore. We don't need to be kind anymore. It is too much effort, too much effort, to, to go back to the earlier point, too much effort to keep up with the term I'm supposed to use right now. Mm-hmm. Too much effort to learn from my neighbor what offends him or her. Right. Um, And to then integrate that into the way I conduct myself around that person. Um, And so there is a laziness to it. And maybe that laziness is mitigated by extenuating circumstances as when a working class family is struggling. Right. But there but 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 I think we would argue rich or poor. Right. Like stressed or not stressed. Right. There is a certain duty of decency we all have to one another well yeah go, go ahead respond to that ben so as a as a christian yes i mean I, yeah our speech should be we should be thinking about how we can serve others and build up in our speech i think that that's pretty clear i however am completely unsurprised that outside of sure the christian You're world totally right about uh, that. Yeah. that people can be more concerned with self when it comes to their speech instead of others uh, and I think that's what we're talking about, right? Like even the quote mentioned before or people who don't feel like getting to know their neighbor and learning what, what is and is not appropriate speech is because they're more concerned with themselves than they are mm-hmm. with people outside of themselves. So that's a sin issue and there's only, there's only one cure for that and it's Jesus Christ. Yeah. So speaking of that, how does the church tend to enter this conversation, if they do at all? What, what, what do we read and hear about in kind of Christian circles on this question of political correctness? I think in the in the sort of problematic instances that I'm thinking of now. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm surpri- I'm glad I surprised you on the last question. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think on the in the in the problematic instances I'm thinking of right now. I I think I. I think I see sometimes among Christians 
basically approach that just looks like the world. It just looks like their mm-hmm. political party, whichever party they're in. Um, so for folks who are a bit more conservative, I think I often see, as you were saying a moment ago, this categorical denouncing of political correctness as, as wrong in some sort mm-hmm. of way, while simultaneously failing to keep the biblical sort of ethics for, for our speech and to speak in ways that mm-hmm. the Bible calls us to. And if I'm thinking about on the left, I think I see Christians who, who would be a bit more on progressive in their in their politics. I think I can see them calling for what we might call political correct speech in various ways mm-hmm. while vilifying the folks who don't speak that way. Sure. Right? And so I think in both cases, we, we can fail to bring our speech in line with a passage like Colossians 3. So let me just read yeah. a few lines out of that. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 8. Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Mm-hmm. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and notice, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're back to the Imago Dei, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Here there's not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Mm. bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, Mm. so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together, in perfect harmony. Hmm. Now, if, if I ask myself the question, how well do does our speech line up to that? Then I'm I'm sort of left with the conclusion that we all got we all got some growth to do, hmm. um, particularly in the area of how we speak about politics and and our political opponents and political issues in that way. This good. Oh, go ahead, Ben. I would also say that that's uh, we talked about social media that's a good controlling text for how we should behave on social media. Is there guys, what do you think? Uh, you, you see more of Christians on social media than I do. Is there any difference between the tone of Christians in the blogosphere and on social media and the world? Uh. <laughs> Sorry. It, it sounded, that sounded like a rhetorical question. It's not meant to be. So, no, no, I know it's yeah. not. What I was struggling with is I don't have a good approximation of the world. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so most of my social media engagement is with professing Christians. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know how good or bad the world is on these issues in a, in that way. What, what I can tell you is uh, that the Christian landscape is diverse, mm-hmm. and the folks who are most problematic seem to me to be loudest. Mm-hmm. Right. So I see a lot of Colossians three in mm-hmm. social media. Either people just quoting out the scripture hmm. or people attempting to speak in these ways. Hmm. But I also see among professing Christians a lot of trolls and so-called discernment folk types out there hmm. who, to, to me, even as they're chastising. You know, so, for example, I, I've been engaging people in recent weeks. Uh, somebody's been coming at me about verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, yep. free, but Christ is all in all. Been driving real hard at that. Christians shouldn't be thinking in these sort of racial categories. Colorblindness. Right, colorblindness. That's their text for colorblindness. Now, from where I sit, receiving a lot of the communication, um, the next verse Mm -hmm. put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, 
humility, meekness, patience, bearing with each other. That just seems utterly missing. Mm-hmm. But in, in the mouths of the same folks who are driving so hard mm-hmm. at a verse, one verse earlier, yeah. right? Uh, in the name of guarding the truth or guarding the gospel or guarding unity and so on. So I just I just think that, and, and I'm sure, listen, I, I'm sure there are many people who could pull out instances of me being inconsistent, mm. right? So I just think that largely there's a problem with inconsistency, and largely mm. there's a problem of what I would argue are, are troublesome, problematic voices being louder yeah. and more repetitive than are a lot of good Christian voices mm. keeping Colossians 3, uh, but who are drowned out in a world that's attracted to anger. Uh, and attracted to partisanship. Yeah. There's something about social media that kind of brings out the beast, right? And I think that what you're describing the media is some people who are fighting the good fight in the Colossians 3 spirit and restraining themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you do that. I know there are several who kind of think, how am I going to make sure my words are, you know, uh, are, are, are kind and gracious and seasoned? Um, and then there are people who just don't. Hmm. And I do think that social media is a particular, taking it outside of the church, it's sort of, there's something about the, the, it's not quite anonymity because in many cases your name is there, but there's something about the fact that it's not in real time face to face, um, that frees up some of our worst instincts, I think. And something that Christians who do decide to participate in those debates probably need to be mindful of when they enter that arena, I think. Hmm. there's a dehumanization um, when you're talking to a screen that I think you need to remind yourself that there's an image bearer of God on the other, other end of that screen. Um, Mm. I think for me, sometimes something that's been so discouraging is to watch uh, pastor T take some of the heat he does online and even, even well thought out critiques that seem to think all there is to pastor T is what he writes on the gospel coalition or what he tweets. And I've, I've known this brother for a year and a half and he's so much more than that. So much more humble, so much more gentle than you could possibly imagine not to blow you up on the podcast, (laughs) but there's a human being here who I love dearly. Who's, who's living and breathing and has been a great uh, mentor to me and a great leader of this church. And And, and to me, they don't know that. And they, they have completely stripped T of all of his context and are just like, you wrote this, therefore you are this. And it's it's so it's it's missing ninety nine point nine percent of the man that I know, which is part of the reason I think he should do this podcast. So hopefully <laughs> they'll get a sense for who he is. Um but but that's what they're missing is they don't see that there's a fully fleshed out human being here. Um, they they just see what they project under the words that he's writing, which they interpret incorrectly all the time as well. Um, so my exhortation to everyone is just to remember that there is an image bearer uh, that you're talking to and that they are deserving of the respect that anybody made in the image of God should receive. Uh- that that's kind of you, bros. I didn't mean to turn into a defense of eating. Uh, we know, we know. <laughs> oh, know. We're the ones who brought it there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I think that that exhortation to remember in your speech that your listener is an image bearer. That's good. And it's listeners, yep, and sure. it's unknown listeners in the case of digital or social media or this podcast, actually, as it were, um, and that we should always kind of speak um, with that in mind. I think there are that is 
Well, so let, so let's bring it back around to the sort of uh, original question then, which is to say, um, what should then the Christians' relationship be um, with political correctness? Yeah, I think I just want to have encourage the Christian to have a relationship with their Bible, <laughs> right? Um, and follow uh, if, if if we sort of let the Bible set the agenda for our speech, then I think we're going to get things in proper proportion and we'll say things with the proper spirit. Mm. And and there will be enough in the Bible that will allow us to sometimes speak sharply about something that's wrong, to mm -hmm. rebuke, to reprove. But I think there'll be a lot in the Bible that'll also help us with gentleness and kindness and humility and consideration of the other, which at its best is what political correctness is about and what clearly from the Bible is what our speech should be aimed at, yep. building the other up, caring for the other, so on. So God needs to set the agenda for our words. Mm -hmm. And that's that's tough to do, but that's the that's the hard work of sanctification that we, we should pursue in our speech. Yeah. Um, I arrived at the same point in a slightly different way, mm -hmm. which was to say that call it political correctness or don't call it political correctness, right? right? The Bible sort of lays down some clear markers for how we should be careful with our speech. Mm -hmm. And if that overlap, to the extent that overlaps with modern conceptions of political correctness, then praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. It's a framework that will be helpful to us all. Mm -hmm. um, and we can see, though, where it doesn't overlap right. and where that's actually not quite right. That's right. And so that actually ought to be... Um, it's funny, there is a glib defense of political correctness in which people say, you know, I think someone even wrote like a, uh, like a, a tab browser, like, uh, extension for Chrome mm -hmm. that allows you to replace the word political correctness with being decent to other people. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was cute because you all know what we mean by that. Oh, well, political mm -hmm. correctness is just being decent. And I guess my answer is when in fact that is what it is, it makes total sense because mm -hmm. of what's in Colossians three. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how we need to think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that at all. Um, I think political correctness is just a grid, like so many other things, where it's helpful. Let's let's use that, and where it departs from what Scripture would have us speak to, let's throw it away. I mean, that's that's basically it. Pastor yeah. T, you want to go ahead and pray us out? Father, we praise you as the great God who speaks. We marvel, O oh Lord, that you've allowed us to share in this attribute of yours, that we too, unique among all creation, are speakers. Help us, O oh Lord, to speak forth your truth, to do it more faithfully, and help us to speak with your spirit, Lord, to, to adopt your attitude. Let the mind that is in Christ be in us, O oh Lord. Give us humility with our words and uh, give us efficiency, economy with our words. Don't let us talk too much. Don't let us speak too little. Let us open our mouths to defend the vulnerable and the voiceless, uh, but let us close our mouths in the face of your greatness and your grandeur uh, and help us to build up our neighbor. And in a context where there's so much division and so much heat, let us speak things that bring light, O oh Lord. Help us in this, we pray. Uh, we desperately need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.